intensity and understanding intensity of poverty is so important because where you start shapes what is required to help you no longer be poor, right? So in most measures currently in use, there's a binary categorization of poor or not poor. And categorizing people that way, based on whether they're immediately below or above the current international poverty line of $1.90 per day, does two things that are problematic for informing action on poverty and inequality. First, it potentially categorizes people differently, poor or not poor, when actually their circumstances are quite similar. Secondly, it categorizes poor people as though they're all similar when actually their circumstances might be very different. So what you need to do to not be poor if you are deeply deprived on multiple dimensions of life is going to be different from what you need to do if you're just below the poverty line. Welcome back to the DFN Podcast. I'm your host, Alan. In today's episode, we will be speaking with my friend, Joanna lindner Fredella. Joe is the Director of Knowledge Translation and Equality Insights at the International Women's Development Agency, also known as IWDA. The IWDA is the leading Australian NGO focused on women's rights and gender equality in Asia-Pacific. Joe oversees IWDA's flagship program to redefine how poverty is measured. This program, which is called Equality Insights, measures the poverty of individuals using 15 key dimensions of life that men and women with lived experience of poverty say matter. Joe will dive into the details of the program in this episode, but to give you a little teaser, the program has a survey to collect information about different aspects of a person's life, including their health, clothing, access to water, sanitation, their ability to raise concerns with local authorities, the demands on their time, and other details that help us to understand people's circumstances. This information helps decision makers better understand how different people experience these issues and how this might vary depending on who they are, where they live, or how old they are. Today we'll get to hear from Jo about the work at the foundation of this approach. She'll walk us through the limitations of current poverty measures, and we'll discuss how a gender-sensitive poverty measure will help us meet our commitment to the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Thanks for joining us today, Joe. Thank you. Given the topic of our lounge today is redefining how poverty is measured, I think a good place to start this conversation is by discussing What are the limitations of current poverty measures and how does Equality Insights overcome these challenges? Such a good question. Thanks, Ali. Before I dive in, I also want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where I'm joining this call from, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, As you did before, this acknowledgement is common practice as well in Australia to recognize the ownership and ongoing sovereignty of Australia's Indigenous people, recognizing that this land was never ceded and it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Along these lines, I think it's also worth noting that 2021 marks the 50th anniversary of the first time that Australia's Indigenous population was enumerated in the census here in Australia. So that action was subject to a nationwide referendum to change the Australian constitution to allow the government to count Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And their inclusion in the census paved the way for the Commonwealth to be able to make laws for them. 
It was also the pathway by which the deeply unjust and unequal circumstances of Australia's First Nations people was made apparent in scope and in scale. So I'm sharing that now because it's really pertinent to the work that my team is doing at Equality Insights. We start from the premise that representation and data matters and the data that can reveal the different experiences of people based on gender is foundational for achieving justice and equality. And I think that these are values that are common and shared across this network. So it is really very exciting to have the opportunity to come and speak with you all today. So back to the question that you actually posed, how are poverty measures limited and how does Equality Insights overcome those limitations? So I thought I would share today about four ways in which current poverty measures are limited. The first is that around the world, poverty measurement assesses the poverty of households, not of individuals. So this means that it can only tell us about people in poverty, but not which people. So from the data that's collected, we actually can't answer really fundamental questions like how many women are poor globally or are women poorer than men overall? And that's pretty basic information that we can't respond to. And it was identified more than 26 years ago as a priority in the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action in 1995. So in the, the platform for action, it emphasized the importance of investing in sex disaggregated data to provide information about the circumstances of women. And it called on national and international statistical organizations to collect gender and age disaggregated data on poverty and to examine the relationship of women's unremunerated work to the incidence of their vulnerability to poverty. And I guess even more extraordinarily is that this limitation is well acknowledged, including in the 2017 report of the World Bank's Commission on Global Poverty. So this is really deeply problematic at multiple levels. And fundamentally, what it means is that the data we have can't accurately be disaggregated to show how poverty varies by factors such as age, sex, ability, or the intersections of these, despite everything that we know that these are all factors that influence access to and control over resources. So by design, this household level measurement hides differences in the relationship between gender and poverty, and it hides the intersectional experience of poverty. So that's the first limitation. The second is that information about the circumstances of households are usually collected from one person, typically the head of household, typically the man. So that assumes that one person can be a reasonable proxy for everyone else in the household. And it assumes that resources within the household are evenly distributed. So anyone who's ever shared a house with other people probably knows that that isn't true. And in terms of gender, in fact, we know that the household is one of the first sites of inequality. And furthermore, we know that leading global economist Ravi Kambar has estimated that around one third of global poverty and inequality is found within households and so is being hidden by household level measurement. The third limitation of current poverty measures is that they focus mainly on money or a narrow range of other factors such as health and education. And yet we know those people who experience poverty say that there's a whole range of other factors that are shaping that experience. And in fact, uh, Equality Insights knows this from research that we did at the foundation of our work, engaging with men and women living in poverty, who say that there were a much wider range of factors beyond money that impact on their circumstances and that would need to change in order for them to not be poor. 
And finally, the last limitation I wanted to raise today is that most measurement focuses on factors that women and men have in common, and it excludes factors that are particularly relevant for women, even though those factors come with significant economic costs and life implications. So things like access to contraception, access to menstrual hygiene facilities or products. So our work at Equality Insights aims to overcome those limitations in four key ways. The first is that we collect primary data at the individual level. So this means that we don't rely on existing data and the baked in gender inequalities within it to say something meaningful about gendered poverty. By asking all surveyed individuals uh, questions across 15 dimensions and an assets module, we're able to understand how deprivations overlap and are magnified by things like gender, age, geography, disability status, and other intersectional characteristics. The second strategy we use is that we interview all adults in a sampled household. So this means that we're getting visibility of the differences within the household and not just between households. The third strategy, as I sort of already mentioned in the first, we take a multidimensional view of poverty. Our survey covers 15 dimensions plus an assets module, which is used as a proxy for financial status. And this recognizes that not all problems associated with poverty can be addressed simply by having a bit more money in your pocket. It also means that we're able to recognize dimensions of deprivation that are highly gendered. So things like family planning, voice, and time use, which are all dimensions in our survey. And linked to that and forth, we take a gender sensitive approach to our work. So not just in the dimensions that we cover, but within them as well. So as an example, in our clothing dimension, we ask about sufficiency of menstrual hygiene products. And in our health dimension, we ask questions about access to prenatal and birthing support. So that's sort of a long answer to the question, but it hopefully gives a bit more information about our initiative and about what we're trying to do um, and helps position. And actually, before I pass back to you, Ali, I just did want to make one other point, which is that all models have limitations, including ours. So they reflect these trade-offs between what you want to know and what it's possible to measure between information and time and comprehension and parsimony. So my intention now isn't to say that what we do is perfect, but I am saying it's an improvement on the deeply partial and flawed measurement approaches that are most common today. The assumptions of the patriarchy are so deeply embedded in the current ways of measuring poverty, so much so that women don't show up in their specificity or their diversity in poverty data. So their circumstances are being hidden by design. And the first step to correcting that is making those circumstances visible in data so that the drivers of poverty and inequality for women are visible. And our measure makes different assumptions about what is required for adequate measurement. And these are aimed at overcoming or countering this normalization of the patriarchy and the invisibility of women and data that results from that. Thank you for that candid response, Joe. It, it's fairly easy to understand how measuring poverty at the individual level rather than a household level and by including factors like sex disaggregated data would elevate the voices of women and girls and other historically marginalized genders that aren't included in traditional poverty measures. So with that in mind and taking a step back at the bigger picture, how will this gender sensitive and multidimensional poverty measure help us meet our commitments to the 2030 agenda for sustainable development? 
So right now, those policies and decisions to take action on the SDGs are, as I was just saying, being made using data that's hiding the experience of half the population. So if those solutions are being designed using that data, it's hard to imagine that we have a lot of hope of truly being able to address the root causes of what's driving those things sitting under the SDGs. But on the flip side, as you're highlighting in the question, gender-sensitive poverty measurement can paint a truer picture of the actual circumstances that are being experienced by women and men in their diversity and make it possible who's experiencing which issues, which barriers, and which opportunities, because resilience is also a key factor to be able to tap into. So for everyone who remembers the many years of post-2015 negotiations, which I think started in 2012, so quite quite a long time of negotiating that post-2015 agenda, you might remember that measuring the SDGs was also a really strong emphasis. And when indicators for the SDGs were being negotiated among countries globally, that focus was understandably on using indicators that already had agreed methodologies and already had data that was accessible. So while that was and is a really sensible approach to getting started, you can see that also taking that approach locks in current data collection approaches. And because of the limitations that I was just sharing, we can see that in reality, what it's done is it's locked in a really inadequate status quo. And so there was recognition of this in the process, and there was a complex undertaking between 2015 and 2020. But essentially, in that time period, what happened was they assessed available methodologies and identified whether or not they were going to bring in new measures for the various SDG indicators. And what that meant was that by 2020, measurement approaches to the identified SDG indicators that were deemed to be innovations or those that weren't hadn't had widespread testing or didn't have widespread and available data were ruled out for official tracking purposes. So again, this is really understandable in terms of managing demands on small and poorly resourced national statistics offices, who are the ones who are meant to be collecting this SDG data. But it doesn't change the importance of improving measurement and data for realizing the SDGs. So individual level measurement of multidimensional poverty is essential to get to the disaggregated data that's actually implied in goal one, which is end poverty in all its forms everywhere. It's also really essential for goal five around achieving gender equality and goal 10 on reducing inequalities. So the innovations that are championed by my team at Equality Insights are really critical to accelerating the achievement of the SDGs, and they can provide really important complementary data to support action on poverty and inequality. And it's also really essential data if we're to meet the overarching commitment um, embedded in the SDGs to leave no one behind. So we can't see how overall progress is translating into outcomes for particular groups without the disaggregation of data that's enabled by measures like ours. We need that really rounded data that makes visible the circumstances of women and men in their diversity in key areas of life so that we can help to overcome the barriers and discriminations that limit the rights and contributions of millions of women around the world. And I'd also note that really deep qualitative knowledge is important for understanding this as well. It's important for understanding the human experience, 
and its significance and for motivating action, storytelling and connecting people to individuals' experiences is really important. But it's also really difficult to translate that kind of knowledge into information that can confirm scope and scale. And policymakers and those who have authority to allocate budgets often need information that can confirm scope and scale because their task and their responsibility is to decide where to allocate really finite resources for the greatest economic and social impact. So what you get with the quality insights data, for example, is information that can lead to policies and outcomes that respond to and address the needs of individuals. And our data makes it easier to see and to act on the ways that multiple forms of inequalities can interact. And that's what's required to make sure that we leave no one behind. The principle of leaving no one behind, the idea of well-rounded data and what you mentioned about connecting to experiences and highlighting that in the data, those are kind of related to the principles of data feminism as defined by the authors, uh, Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren F. Klein in their book, Data Feminism. So I'd love to tie this conversation to a few of those principles more directly. One of their principles is to embrace pluralism. And what this means is data feminism insists that the most complete knowledge comes from synthesizing multiple perspectives with priority given to local indigenous and experiential ways of knowing, which is something that you've alluded to the importance of in your previous questions already. But I want to know, I want to know how, if at all, has this principle or a similar way of thinking influenced this new measure of poverty at Equality Insights? We love the data feminism principles, um, and this one in particular has been really fundamental in our work, um, and it's manifest in a number of really critical ways. The first is that from the outset of our work, it's been cross-sector, bringing together and bringing into dialogue civil society, academia, national statistics offices, local government officials, women's rights organizations, and really importantly, people with lived experience of poverty. So the participatory research that was at the foundation of the measure's development and undertaken under the Individual Deprivation Measure or IDM phase of our work is a really clear example of this. So in 2008, a cross-disciplinary international research team came together to answer the question, what is a just and justifiable measure of poverty that is gender sensitive and capable of revealing gender disparities where they exist? The initiative was explicitly focused on improving existing global quantitative measures of poverty. So the partners at that time included civil society organizations and research institutions. And we started with participatory research led by local partners in six countries. So Angola, Fiji, Indonesia, Malawi, Mozambique, and the Philippines. And research was undertaken across 18 research sites with three age cohorts in each of those countries. And we used a range of participatory approaches to ask poor men and poor women what mattered most to them. And so from this initial participatory work, academics and experienced practitioners working with civil society organizations in those six countries came together to do some sense making of that information. And they organized it into 25 potential dimensions of poverty. And then the team returned to the same 18 sites, presented back those 25 dimensions to check if there was anything missing. And then they asked people to identify the top 15 dimensions and rank them in terms of importance. 
So almost 3,000 people with lived experience of poverty across six countries were involved in these two participation phases. From that, academics and civil society specialists then built a multidimensional quantitative measure of poverty, engaging really closely with literature from across disciplines, so including on poverty and poverty measurement and with feminist scholarship on gender and development, as well as consulting with sector experts and measurement experts throughout. So our approach has really reflected this idea of bringing into dialogue multiple perspectives, multiple ways of knowing, and really centering lived experience as a key feature. And it also reflects our aim to improve on existing and globally used quantitative measures of poverty. So we then trialed the measure in the Philippines, working with professional data collection firms, and the outcome was a world-first viable individual-level measure of gender-sensitive multidimensional poverty, which was then known as the individual deprivation measure. And so the quantitative survey that we use now to collect the data for our measure isn't itself participatory, but what it measures is grounded in that participation and lived experience. And I would also note just finally that we approach the process of validation and sense-making with the involvement of people and organizations who have direct experience and expertise in the countries where we collect data. So in Fiji in 2016, we worked with multiple stakeholders in government and civil society, around 40 people in total, in a two-day sense-making workshop to really check findings and how to interpret them. And in our most recent work in the Solomon Islands in 2020, we similarly sought to work closely with individuals and organizations at the grassroots and with duty bearers in government to shape the focus of the study and present results for feedback and validation. So actually, I said finally, but I have one more point. <laughs> We're also really um, keen to make sure that the data is accessible to those people who aren't um, quantitative or measurement experts, and so that the data can be used cross-disciplinarily by others outside of the statistical community. So we've been investing in the development of technology that makes the data generated by Equality Insights easier to understand and access across disciplines and sectors. So that idea of pluralism continues to inform our thinking all the way throughout what we're doing. It's always fascinating to hear initiatives and, and programs like Equality Insights that have these principles of data feminism so deeply embedded, embedded in them. And on that last point that you mentioned about having accessible language to be able to communicate your findings, that's something that we really try to emphasize here at Data Feminism Network. You know, that's what we're all about, engaging the community, whether you're a data scientist a data expert or a feminist completely new to the realm of data. And that's a very challenging thing to do, but so, so important. So it's really interesting to hear real world implications of that. An aspect of Equality Insights that I find particularly fascinating is it provides insights into the intensity of an individual's poverty. So I'm wondering how does knowing how poor individuals are and in what dimensions how does that help support decision-making of governments and organizations when it comes to policy and programming? Intensity and understanding intensity of poverty is so important because where you start shapes what is required to help you no longer be poor, right? So in most measures currently in use, there's a binary categorization of poor or not poor. And categorizing people that way 
based on whether they're immediately below or above the current international poverty line of $1.90 per day, does two things that are problematic for informing action on poverty and inequality. First, it potentially categorizes people differently, poor or not poor, when actually their circumstances are quite similar. Secondly, it categorizes poor people as though they're all similar when actually their circumstances might be very different. So what you need to do to not be poor if you are deeply deprived on multiple dimensions of life is going to be different from what you need to do if you are just below the poverty line. So our initiative measures on a four-point scale from most deprived to least deprived so that we can see who's farthest behind in what areas to support priority setting, targeting, and measuring impact. That is to ask the question, is what we're doing working, our policies and programming actually translating into changed outcomes, and if so, for whom? So responses are scored on that four-point scale, and the response options are aligned with existing measurement where relevant and scoring that is informed, again, by the original participatory work that we did. So we did an activity with participants where they drew a ladder of poverty and they showed what circumstances characterize particular levels of poverty. So it's not just the level of poverty that matters, though. It's also the ways in which you're poor. So poor people are not all poor in the same way. And we need to understand what combination of barriers and constraints keep people poor and how these vary for particular social groups and in particular places. So because Equality Insights collects information about 15 dimensions plus an assets module from each individual, it generates a really comprehensive data set that can be explored at any level of analysis from individual level up to national level, assuming you have the appropriate sampling, and by factors including sex, age, sociocultural background, disability. And so we can see how demographic characteristics and identities influence the circumstances and interact to deepen deprivation. And intersections can also be assessed in multiple combinations. So for example, sex by disability in an urban area, again, provided that your sample size is sufficient. So we can also see which social groups are deprived in which dimensions of life and how these patterns vary And this provides that really granular data to support targeting and prioritizing um, and provides insights into the constraints that are shared by particular groups and those that are not shared. And it really helps to reveal very concretely the barriers that people face and what support is really needed by advocates and by duty bearers to actually change their circumstances. And so we find something that really excites stakeholders is being able to drill down from the dimensions to the responses to specific questions that are really driving an overall outcome in a particular context. So the power of our measure really lies in operationalizing both the multidimensionality and the intersectionality and combining this with the the power um, and the insights provided by um, indices, because essentially each dimension is a mini index combining measurement of multiple themes. And this helps to show where deprivation is concentrated and therefore can guide really focused action. So I truly believe that Equality Insights supports both the feminist imperative to accelerate change for gender equality and the public policy imperative to maximize value, effectiveness, and efficiency. Highlighting the importance of having multiple dimensions when it comes to data, such as um, having a more 
diverse range rather than a binary of poor or not poor is a great example that can be applied to so many other dimensions. For example, the gender binary having a more inclusive spectrum. Is, I'm really glad you highlighted that because it's really important to be applied to so many aspects of data and data collection to support more inclusive and, and better decision making. And my last question for you, Joe, is what are the next steps for Equality Insights? Yeah, well, like everyone else, 2020 hit and we had to think about how was our work going to look different to address the COVID context. So we know that the kind of data that our survey produces is highly relevant for revealing vulnerability and for understanding the extent to which COVID response and recovery is actually translating into improvements for individuals. But in all of our surveying work so far, we've used face-to-face data collection methods, and our survey tool has been developed assuming face-to-face approaches, so both in terms of the survey length and in terms of some of the more sensitive questions that we cover. So we're focused on the moment on adapting the survey for remote administration with the Pacific as the initial focus region for that work. So we've convened a global technical advisory group to support us in that. And we do face some significant contextual challenges with the Pacific region, as both mobile phone and internet penetration rates are fairly low, and those are characteristics you would want for being able to use remote surveying methods. But we've considered the unique features of the survey, so the individual level, gender-sensitive, multidimensional, within-household, and scalar, and the various remote surveying options available, and we've landed on a decision to trial a phone-based survey. And alongside that, we're looking at using partnerships as a way to bring creativity to our sampling approach, because we know that a phone-based survey can skew the sample male and urban and younger and more highly educated. And we need to do, um, do more and find ways to ensure that those who are least likely to have access to a phone, so people who are poor, women, those in a rural area, are being picked up sufficiently in our sample. So alongside that work of identifying and actioning the modality of delivering our survey, we've also been working on reducing the survey so it's the appropriate length for administration by phone. So that work is really challenging by nature because we need to very significantly reduce a comprehensive multi-topic survey while retaining the features that make our measure powerful and distinctive, including that gender sensitivity. So again, this has involved some difficult choices between comprehensiveness and parsimony, and the technical team in Equality Insights is leading a process of item reduction that balances technical and data-driven insights into the performance of the measure with normative considerations so that we ideally get to a survey of about 20 minutes in length, which we're calling Equality Insights Rapid for the time being. So we're anticipating that we'll finish that process um, by August and we'll share documentation widely of the process and of our learnings throughout. Um, And we also have funding support to use the rapid survey tool to do two data collections in the Pacific before the end of 2022. So definitely um, a fair bit of technical work underway, but we also have a focus on supporting data into use. So we know that data is only useful if it's getting used. And one of the greatest opportunities of our work being embedded in a larger feminist development agency is that there's a lot of cross-fertilization of ideas. And one of those is the organization's work on movement strengthening over the last five years, particularly, and a focus inside the organization 
on moving that movement strengthening work from a predominantly programmatic approach to institutionalizing it across the organization as a core strategy for achieving systemic change. So for the Equality Insights team, that means we can bring a movement strengthening approach to our work building constituencies for data use. And one way that we do that is to convene multi-sector steering groups in the countries where we collect data. So we're providing spaces for gender um, gender equality advocates that are both external to and internal to government to come together, to build relationships of trust, to build a common analysis of issues drawing from our data, and to work to advance a common commitment to gender equality, utilizing their different spheres of control and influence. And so by building this constituency who have opportunities to work together, we're not only strengthening the pathways for uptake and use for the data that we collect, but also helping to put in place mechanisms that further embed dialogue and engagement in country between influential gender advocates. And our hope is that those mechanisms and the relationships and ways of working that get established inside of them can outlast our specific program. And I guess finally, a bit of full circle back to your first question, Ali. We are currently and into the foreseeable future focused on shifting expectations of what is considered adequate data. So we are determined to make visible the impact and implications of the normalized patriarchal assumptions in poverty measurement for women's lives and to challenge and shift the, pol the political economy of data and of measurement so that the costs of the status quo are clear and the value of innovations that upend that status quo are also clear. So we really want to be part of the movement that says tools that make women's lives and all their diversity visible in data are not optional extras. They are fundamental and they are essential. And that's really key part of our focus going forward. Spoken like a true data feminist, Joe, I love it. <laughs> I will be following your work closely and can't wait to see the outcomes of this incredible initiative. Thank you so much, Ali. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. If you're interested in learning more about equitable and gender sensitive data approaches, we encourage you to join our book club we're currently reading Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, which is all about exposing data bias in a world designed for men. This is one of my all-time favorite books. I recommend it to everyone. It's thought-provoking, it's hilarious, it's infuriating, and just an all-around great read. Our first meeting will be held virtually at the end of February 2022. Everyone is welcome. Details on how to register are in the show notes. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode where Jade and I will be discussing data fails.